How's it going, everybody? It's good to have everybody here tonight. Um, I think there's a couple of, I don't know if anybody else is looking for seats. I think they got it in the back there. Okay, perfect. All right, y'all. Well, good to see everybody here tonight. Um, If you are a first-time visitor with us, we're so excited that you decided to come and be a part here tonight. Um, If you are returning, we're glad that you decided to come back. Uh, We're going to be continuing our study through the book of Philippians. And if you haven't been here, I'm going to kind of recap a little bit. If you've missed a week or two, I'm hopefully going to fill in a few gaps, not heavily, but just to kind of catch us up to where we are. Um, But y'all, we're excited that you're here tonight. I'm excited that you're here tonight. And uh, we're going to have a great time as we continue to study through our series through Philippians um, that we were calling Gospel Worthy. And so as we start tonight, I want to start off by asking this question. If I were to ask you this, how do you mature or grow in your faith? Let's say a random person were to come up to you and ask you that question. How do you mature in your faith? How do you grow in your faith? How would you respond? My guess is that most of us would point to something that we do. It would be, okay, you got to read your Bible. You have to go to church. You need to be a part of a small group. You need to pray. And and we'd, we'd list these things that we have to do. But I think that in many ways, we kind of miss the main purpose and, and, and what it really means to mature in our faith. I think we miss in a lot of ways how we really mature in our faith. And we use these words of do this, do this, do this, rather than living a certain way. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at this question of how do we mature in our faith? Just speaking from from our our stance and with our generation, I think that we have three misconceptions about this. And I'm going to put these on the screen because I think they're important. I think we have three misconceptions of how we view maturity. One, many of us might say knowledge equals maturity. We might say knowledge equals maturity. So for someone to be mature in their faith, you have to learn more. It's about studying doctrine and theology and growing more in your knowledge and and reading the Bible and knowing it more. That's how you mature in your faith. Some people might say something else where it'd be proximity equals maturity. And what I mean by proximity is is the way you mature in your faith is you got to be at church. You got to be around church. You got to be in a small group. You got to be at the BCM. You got to be at whatever these other organizations. We got to go on a mission trip. And so you you equate proximity, in other words, being close to the church or being around the church is somehow going to make you more mature. And that's a misconception as well. And the third thing I want you to see is that some people would say that time would equal maturity, but time does not equal maturity. What do I mean by time? I mean this, the person who would say, I've been a Christian since I was eight years old. That's been 10 years. That's been 12 years. That's been 15 years. Whatever it might be, time does not mean you're you're mature in your faith. But I think that these would be general ways that we would say, this is how we value and how we can measure maturity in our faith, when really, those are misconceptions of what it really means to mature in your faith. So if you would open up to Philippians chapter one, if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to have the the verses on the screen for you, so that's okay, but open to Philippians chapter one, and as we're turning there, I'm going to kind of catch you up with where we've been. So if you haven't been here, this is what's happened thus far. So... So at the beginning of this, two weeks ago, Braden uh, taught the, the, the intro to this uh, book where Paul is essentially greeting the church of Philippi. And to kind of give you background in case you've forgotten or in case you've missed, the church of Philippi has experienced persecution. They're experiencing false teaching. But Paul's the one who's really in trouble at the moment. He's in a prison on house arrest in Rome, and the church of Philippi has sent a guy to him named Epaphroditus. They've sent him over there uh, to help out Paul in the midst of this, this imprisonment. And Paul is writing to them to encourage them. And that's the way Paul starts this, this whole book is he encourages them and he greets them and he tells them how much joy they bring him. 
Well, then last week we talked about how Paul then stopped from the greeting and turned to saying, okay, I want to give you an update about me. And what Paul said is, is what I want you to know is that the gospel is being advanced. Don't worry about me. Know this, the gospel is being advanced. Essentially, Paul was trying to tell them, this is what the main thing is. This is what life is all about, the advancement of the gospel, living an unashamed life, living to glorify God the Father. This is what life is about. And now what we're gonna see is Paul is is gonna be shifting again and turning it back towards the church of Philippi. He's moving from telling them about where he's at and what's really the main thing to saying, this is the main thing I want you to get. This is the main thing I want you to know. And this is where we actually get our series title, Gospel Worthy. So we're going to be chapter one. Uh, we're going to read verses 27 through 2, 2 uh, eventually. But we're going to start off right now just by reading verse 27. Verse 27 said this. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that whenever your word is taught, Lord, you're speaking to us. And so, Father, I pray tonight that we would that we would put behind us any distractions, we'd put away from us uh, anything that's clouding our minds. Lord, we're starting to get into the quarter where we're starting to see tests, we're starting to see projects, and all these things can really cloud our minds. But God, I pray that we would say, Lord, you have my attention. God, I pray that we would say right now, we're listening. Give us your word. Show us what you want us to know. Show us what it is you want us to see today. And ask all this, Father, in your precious and your holy name. Amen. So how do we mature in our faith? Another way to put that maybe is what is the key to Christian growth? I would start off in the old set and and say this. This is going to be kind of the premise of of tonight. As Paul says this, Christian maturity is exemplified and measured by how well we embody the gospel. Hear that again. Christian maturity is exemplified and measured by how well we embody the gospel. And so what I'm going to do tonight, usually I start having kind of a, this is what we're going to talk about. Here's the three, four, five, six, who knows, seven points, whatever it might be. But tonight I'm going to give you an overarching theme, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this theme, gospel worthy. And then later I'm going to come in and we're going to see how he ties this together, how he starts to tie this together as he gets into the rest of Philippians. And so what we see here is this, Christian maturity is exemplified and measured by how well we embody the gospel. Look at verse 27. Look at how Paul, Paul starts off. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Another way to say only is he's saying just one thing. Paul's saying, look, in light of everything that I've taught you, in light of telling you that your purpose and your main concern has to be the advancement of the gospel, other than me telling you your main purpose has got to be living for Christ, other than me telling you your main desire has to be with Jesus Christ, this is the one thing I want you to hear. I love how one commentator put it, he said, this is Paul raising his finger and saying, if you hear nothing else, hear this. This is the implications of everything I said. This is what I want you to hear is only this. And then he says this bold, bold, bold phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is a bold pronouncement. So bold, we're going to spend a lot of time on really unpacking what is Paul saying 
here. I really like how another translation puts it. I have it up there for y'all as well. Another way to say this is let your manner of life as citizens reflect the gospel of Christ. You see, I think this is really important to hear because, because remember, Paul says, let your manner of life, he uses words that are describing citizenship. Now, I want to help you understand why this is important for the church of Philippi and how this will actually apply to us. So for the Philippians, citizenship was a big deal. I mean, it was a really big deal. So Philippi was a city that was of Rome. So they were under Roman rule as much of that world was at that time. But these people really were considered to be almost like a little Rome. One of the things about Philippi is Philippi had great pride in their city. And one of the big things that they had about their city is they were literally called the little Rome. It was said that if you had ever been to Rome or seen Rome or lived to Rome, lived in Rome, if you were to go to Philippi, you would say, this looks like a miniature Rome. And these people prided themselves in that. They prided themselves in their Roman citizenship. And so one, they were proud of their city, but even more so, they were proud of what actually citizenship actually brings for them. And so what that means is this, is if you were a citizen of Rome, you had a lot, a lot, a lot of privileges. Already you were put in a certain position in society. You were put in a certain position around people that you were around. And so you have this large list of position where you're at, and this position has all kinds of privileges that come with it. And then he says, let your manner of life as citizens reflect the gospel of Christ. So to tie this together, he's saying that, okay, as citizens, you have a lot of pride in your city. It's the little Rome. People come there, they're reminded of Rome. You have a lot of pride in your citizenship. You would want people to know that you were a citizen of Rome. If anything were to happen to you, the first thing you would appeal to is, I'm a citizen of Rome. You would want people to know this. You would boast in this. The fact that your name is on the citizenship role would be special to you because of what would come alongside that. Now, why'd I beat that with a hammer? is because Paul says, look, what I'm telling you here is to live your life in a manner as citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, whenever people come to Philippi, they're reminded of Rome. When people come to your church, they should be reminded of Christ. They should be reminded of the kingdom of God. Whenever people come and are around you, they should see something about what God and Christ are like. Yo, this is the truth for us as well. The church is the visual representation of what, the, of what God is like to the world. It is. And the way we act and the way that we do things should be a testament of who we serve. Not only that, Paul is saying, don't boast in the fact that you're on the role as a citizen of Philippi. Boast in the fact that you're on the role as a citizen of God's kingdom. Boast in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you boast in the privileges that come with Roman citizenship. Think about the privileges that come with that. The privileges that come with being a citizen of God's kingdom are you have been redeemed. You are now a son or daughter of the king. You have been forgiven. You have been been freed to live life as you are called to live it. One of the glorious things that Paul continually comes back to, especially you see it in Romans, is how we've been freed from the sin that bondages us. We've been freed from the things that so easily take us down, but through Christ we have been freed to live for him as we were supposed to live. And so Paul is hammering down this idea to live as citizens who reflect the gospel of Christ. He's saying, realize where your true citizenship lies and live in light of that citizenship. I want you to think for a second of what this word reflect really means for us. This idea of living in a a manner that's worthy of the gospel or living in a manner that reflects the gospel. If I say reflect or if I say reflection, 
Usually I probably think of a mirror. You might think of the same thing, a mirror or maybe like a body of water if you see your reflection or a shiny surface or something where you can see your reflection. But there's another way to view reflection, right? A reflection can basically be a result of something. A reflection can basically be because of something, this is now happening. Y'all understand this, I'm sure. Many of you might say, my poor grades are a reflection of my procrastination. My poor grades are a reflection of me deciding I love college, but not the school part, you know? Like, like that's a reflection of that. Some of you might be like, my Fortnite status is a reflection of my hard work ethic. Like, okay, we're getting this twisted here. But it's, but it's reflection. It's what reflects something. And y'all hear this. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Your life is a reflection of what you believe about God. Hear that again. Your life, not what you say you believe, not what you say, not what you do on Sunday or Wednesday only, but your life is a reflection of what you believe about God. What you truly believe about God, people should be able to look at your life and say, that person believes this, this, and this about God. It reflects that and it shows where you really are in your faith. And so coming back full circle to the beginning is, so if we were to ask Paul, what does it mean to be mature in the faith, what would he say? I said at the beginning, he'd say that Christian maturity is exemplified and measured by how well we embody the Christ, how well we embody the gospel. But let me break that down even more. What he would say is your maturity is not based on your input or where you're going. Your maturity in Christ is based on your output. Your maturity in Christ is based on how you live. Your maturity in Christ does not define you based on how much you know. It does not define you whether you're in church or around church or growing up in church or been a Christian for 10, 15, 30, 40 years. Your maturity is not bound by those things or determined by those those things. Your maturity is bound by what have you done with what you know? Are you living a life that's reflecting the God you claim to serve? That's what maturity really is. And y'all, he's emphatic whenever he says this. Once again, here Paul, the great missionary, this is what he says just this one thing to. I don't know if I would have said this. He says beforehand, the main concern, advance the gospel, the main purpose, live for Christ, the main desire, seek to be with Christ, but just this one thing, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Make your life reflect the God that you say you deserve. It isn't just about your concern or your purpose or all this, that, and the other. It's about your actions and how you actually flesh out your life. Essentially this, the main thing is the advancement of the gospel and God's kingdom, but the main avenue is through people who live transformed lives as citizens of the kingdom. Y'all, once again, God could have chosen to get his message to the world any way he wanted to, and he chose you and me. And the main avenue is not just what happens in here. The main avenue is how do we infiltrate the campus for God's kingdom? How do we live for him? How do we live worthy of the gospel? How do we live out our identity as a citizen of God's kingdom? And I would even phrase it as a question. If Jesus were in your life, if Jesus were in your shoes, if Jesus were in your circumstance, would he spend his time and live his life the way you do? Give it any circumstance you have. If Jesus were in your shoes, would he spend his time and live his life like you do? The way you see the difference is there, that's where you see the gospel-worthy life. You know what Jesus was about? Jesus stood for the oppressed and the marginalized. Do you? Jesus cared about these people. Jesus cared for others more than himself. Do you? Do I? 
Jesus lived humbly, do you? Jesus lived to please God, not man or himself, do you? Jesus ran to God for comfort and joy, not to other things, do you? Jesus lived in light of eternity, not storing up treasures for himself here, but in heaven, do you? Jesus didn't waste his time on earth, do you? You see, y'all, the problem with the things I brought up before of saying, of saying knowledge equals maturity is that they fall short of one major premise. There's no such thing as maturity without life. There's no such thing as maturity without results. I don't care if you've gone through seminary to the greatest degree and got a PhD in theology. If your life has not been changed, then you don't know it. And y'all, here's the truth. I tell people this all the time, especially people that I know really just thirst for knowledge. Don't get me wrong, that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying just forget about the Bible and all that stuff. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, what if you were to apply everything you already knew about the faith? How would your life look different? How would your life look, dif- how would your life look different? If you just were to apply what you already know? Y'all, my guess is this, is that you and I know we aren't fully living for Christ. You and I, people out there who maybe even thirst for knowledge and desire that and are reading books and listening to podcasts and all those different things, my question isn't how much are you coming, how much are you bringing into your body? I'm asking, what is the output? Knowledge has to have the goal of action or else you'll become dull of hearing. What about proximity? Proximity falls so short because it gets the idea that just based on where you are, that's how you'll mature. You know, if I come and I stand beside the pulpit long enough, I'm gonna get holier. Like, that's not gonna, it doesn't work like that, right? Y'all, take it from me. I lived a life of growing up in church, being around church, going on multiple mission trips. It wasn't until I actually worked at KAA that I was actually a believer. And y'all, what I want you to understand is proximity does not bring maturity. As a matter of fact, sometimes proximity can do the exact opposite if you're not putting it into your life. It can bring false assurance. It can bring false maturity. It can bring a false ideal of, of, of who you really are in Christ. And that really blends in with the last thing. Time does not equal maturity. I don't think I have to explain this too much. Does anybody know anybody that's an adult that's immature? Don't say your parents out loud all at once. Like I know everybody's like already thinking like my mom, my dad, whatever. But, but really though, like there are adults. Just because somebody's 60 years old doesn't mean they're mature. Just because somebody's 40, just because somebody's 80 does not mean that they are mature. And it's the same in relation to the gospel, y'all. It's just because we say, I came to faith in Christ whenever I was eight, I'm now 30, or whatever it might be, that doesn't mean you've matured. It's what has that, what has that brought in your life? What has the output been? Living out the gospel is the avenue that God uses to bring us to maturity. Y'all, what I wanna encourage you with real quick is, is Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. It, it, just kind of leading into this, the author is talking to 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 the Hebrews here, basically saying this, like, I want to connect all the dots of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And I'm doing my best to do that. And he gets to the end of chapter five, and he talks about what many of us know as the milk and the meat Christians. I want you to look at what differentiates the milk and the meat. So often we talk about teaching. So often we talk about knowledge. Look at what it says. He says, about this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who lives on milk is, listen to this, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Y'all, do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, you still need the milk. You don't need the meat yet. You're not ready for the meat yet because why? You're unskilled in the word of righteousness. Whenever they say unskilled in the word of righteousness, this is talking about their life. It means what you already know hasn't made a difference. We can't give you the meat because you're still at the milk because you haven't applied it yet. And then look at how he goes into the last part where he says that meat is for the mature, for those who've had their powers of discernment trained by, hear the word, constant practice from distinguishing good from evil. This is a constant day-to-day grind of will I live for Jesus? Will I die to myself? Will I live for him? Y'all, one of the struggles that we have and one of the biggest problems is we look at maturity as a destination when really it's a direction. You'll never arrive. You'll never arrive. I heard this quote this summer and I love it. One guy was asked, so, so tell me about some of the mature Christians that you know. He says, I've never met a mature Christian, only maturing Christians. And y'all, that encapsulates the truth right there. Maturity is not a destination. You'll never get there. Maturity is a direction. It's an everyday dying to self and living for Christ. Christian maturity is exemplified and measured by how well we embody the gospel. And I'll add this last bit, which I think it kind of tailors this a little bit better. Christian Christian maturity occurs when a follower of Jesus seeks to align every aspect of his or her life with that of Christ. It's when we seek to align every aspect of our lives with that of Christ. So once again, I told you, it's gonna be bulky on the front end. This is the main thing that I think is the thrust of the rest of Philippians. And Paul is saying, live a life worthy of the gospel. Live in such a way that your life reflects the gospel. Live in such a way that you reflect your citizenship as sons and daughters of the king. But I wanna flesh that out a little bit more. So how? We just said, how do you mature? Well, we said that. Okay, well, how does that even happen? Well, that's the rest of the book. But I want you to notice something that's really neat tonight is the first thing that Paul turns to after giving them this bold command and whenever he says, and whenever he wants to answer, how do you actually do that? He uses one word that is the theme throughout the next several verses. He says, the way you do this is together. The way you do this is together. Now, once again, think about how you and I would respond to this. How do you mature in your faith? Well, you gotta live out your faith, okay? Well, if you know that, then I would say, okay, now how? What's the first principle? If you're me, I'd say, I gotta get in the word. I gotta know how I'm supposed to live. Then I gotta really make it my aim to go out there. I gotta make sure I'm praying. I gotta make sure. And he says, no, 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 no. You gotta do it with somebody. You have to be with people. You have to be with community. And y'all, one of the biggest struggles of our generation is we do our faith individually. Because we have so much access to God's word and devotionals and podcasts, we oftentimes kind of make our, our, our faith individualistic where we say the church is an optional accessory to our lives or the church is another avenue by which I can individually grow in Christ. You don't get me wrong, I'm not against any of those things, obviously, but we only will grow immature whenever we have people around us to help us in that. I think honestly the funny thing about this is the flip side of that with our generation is this is the generation that hates being alone. I mean, I see this all the time, and it's kind of comical. I remember one guy last year, I'll never forget, he was sitting up there, and I walked up, and I was like, hey, man, how's it going? He's like, it's good. I was like, you look like, you're kind of sad. He's like, yeah, I just want to be at my apartment. 
I was like, would you need a ride? He's like, no, my car is outside. I'm like, this is getting really weird. So why don't you go back to your apartment? You locked out? He's like, no, man, there's nobody else there. None of my roommates are there. I was like, all right, so you don't want to go back to your apartment because your roommates aren't there? He's like, dude, I hate being alone. I was like, you hate being alone so bad you won't be at your apartment unless you have roommates there? Like, what in the world? This even happened earlier this week. I'm not going to say any names of any guy who's possibly on leadership, who, who, who would ever. I was going to go in further, but I'll stop there. Anyway, so, so this past week, I was in the back, and, and this, anyway, this guy comes in the back, and he starts asking people to ride with him to go to a drive through He's like, hey, will you ride with me? Hey, will you ride with me? Hey, will you ride with me? And it's like, no, no, no. Anyway, and then you get to lovely Gracie Smith, and I love it how they're talking, and Gracie literally goes, you're serious. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, will you ride? I just, I just don't want to go alone. And so she rides with them to go to get Taco Bell and come right back. Y'all, it's funny how literally we want to be around people. We don't want to be alone. We don't want to feel alone. That's why if we ever are alone, we're looking on social media to see what other people are doing so we don't feel alone. And if we're not doing that, we're going to FaceTime somebody so it feels like somebody's actually there. If we're not doing that, we're watching Netflix wishing we were somebody else. I mean, we're just, we don't want to be alone, right? Putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes. But whenever it comes to the faith, for some reason, we have the exact opposite mentality, is we think we have to do this on our own. We think we have to run this race on our own, and Paul says the first thing after telling you this one thing, reflect God in your life, this one thing, do it together. Do it with people around you. And he gives three short, very quick action steps for what that looks like. And we're going to breeze through these. I just want you to see them real quick. Three short action steps. I want you to read with me verses 27, and we're going to read on through uh, 2-2. Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm Hear what he's saying, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Paul starts by saying this, you have to do this together. And the first thing you have to do is be together in spirit. Together in spirit. Look again at the middle of 27. The middle of 27, he says this. He said, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Y'all, this word standing in Greek has this connotation of a soldier who's just standing and will not be moved. He's saying together, you stand firm. Do not be moved. You stand firm in one spirit. What does he mean by standing firm in one spirit? Well, first of all, how can you stand firm in one spirit with other people? Is that you all have the spirit of God within you. You're united and you're unified first and foremost because you're sons and daughters of the king. You notice he says citizens of the kingdom. He doesn't say citizen. It's not singular. You're not, you're not singled out. You're not by yourself. If the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, then you're a part of a bigger family. And you do this together. 
Not only are you unified because of family, but you're unified in the spirit because you can't do anything on your own. You have to do it only through the power of the spirit. And so he says, I want to put this all first and foremost at the front. You're a unified body, so you should want to do this together. But also, only through the spirit can you do this. I don't care how big the church or organization is. You cannot succeed or do any lasting work if the spirit isn't with you. And Paul says, live together in the spirit. The second thing he says is be together in mind. Together in mind. Look again at 27. He says, that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. With one mind. This is a really interesting thought here. Paul is essentially saying your goals, your aspirations, your hopes, your dreams, what you want out of life should be the same as other followers of Jesus Christ. To, to advance the kingdom should be your primary mindset. That should be your primary goal. To die to self and live for Christ, that should be your mindset. And he's saying, as followers of Jesus, y'all should have this common mindset. I like how one guy puts his name, J.A. Meyer. He says this, this word mind refers to the sphere of the affections and moral energies. It points to what we feel about things and how we react to them. And listen to this. It raises the question of what things we consider valuable and what constitutes a worthwhile objective in life. Essentially, being of one mind is, it's a group of people who are saying, this is what I consider the worthwhile objective of my life. Let me explain it this way. In basketball, you've got five guys who are going to start, who are going to be on the court at the same time. I want you to imagine this scenario and think about how well this would go. This is very common, but imagine how well this would go. Let's say you got one starter who his goal for every game, he's in it to make a big play. His goal is to be flashy. His goal is to dunk on somebody. His goal is to get a big block. His goal is to be on Center top 10. That's his goal. Then you got one guy who isn't playing for the name on the front of the jersey. He's playing for the name on the back of the jersey. His goal is fame. He wants to have the most points, the most assists, the most whatever. He wants to be that guy. Then you have another guy on your team who doesn't want to play very hard because he's ticked off at the coach. Coach isn't, you know, running plays for me enough. He isn't da 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 Then you get another guy on the team who's ticked off at another guy on the team because he won't pass in the ball or because whatever, girl issues or whatever it might be. They're mad at each other about something. And then you got the last guy who says, I'll do anything it takes to win. Now, how far will that team go? Most likely they might win some games. I don't know, but but they're really not gonna go very far because they're divided. How are they divided? They're divided in their mind. They're divided at what they look at as the worthwhile objective of their team. And y'all, I love this verbiage, worthwhile objective. What do you consider a worthwhile objective of your day-to-day life? Paul is saying as believers, we should all have the same worthwhile objective in mind. Our primary goal should be to see people come to know Jesus Christ. It should be to infiltrate our campus with the gospel. It should be to see God's kingdom advance through us. It's to see God use us as his hands and his feet. But the truth is, is we don't do this as the church often. Often we have divisions, we have struggles, we're in it for ourselves, or we want people to see how great we are, or we're mad at somebody else here, or we're, and we have all these different mindsets, and we may even be in here tonight, and you know what, I'm going to kind of worship, but I don't really feel like it because I got all these, our mindset has to be centered in and around the mission of Christ. But the truth is, is we don't see Christ and living for him as the most glorious thing that we can put our time to. Oftentimes we don't. 
We don't see this as the main objective of our day to day. We see this maybe as a life goal, but it has to be the main objective of our day to day. We will grow in maturity together as we set our minds on the same goal together. And that goal is to live for Christ and to die to ourselves and to together infiltrate this campus and this world for the kingdom of Christ. Together in spirit, together in mind, and lastly, it's together in faith. Together in faith. Look at the next verse, or at the end of verse 27, he says this. He says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I love how he uses this imagery right after he talks about being in one mind. Going at this together, you're standing firm, and then he says, now in one mind, strive for the sake of the gospel. This word strive actually has the word athleo in it, which is where we get our word athletics. It paints imagery of an offensive line who together, their goal is to advance the line. I like how they call it the trenches. They call it the battle, the war zone is in between where the the defensive line and the offensive line are and that's where the battle is gonna happen and the goal of the offensive line is to advance their guys, is to get them out of the way, is to put them on their back and they do that striving side by side. And this is what Paul says, we not only stand firm but we strive side by side as we take this gospel and we live for the faith of the gospel. Now whenever he says this, he means two things. He means we're united in our message and we're united in the way that we live. We're united in our message of the faith and we're united in the way that we live. Y'all hear me again. There's no such thing as a hero in the faith apart from Jesus. There's no such thing as one person making a difference for Christ alone. That's never happened. That won't happen apart from Jesus Christ and Jesus chose to have people around him. Last week I gave the example of Jim Elliott. And many of you have probably heard of Jim Elliott and all the things that Jim Elliott has done and how he went to Ecuador. If you weren't here, he went to Ecuador and he said, I'm gonna give up my life for the sake of the gospel. And his story is known so well because his wife wrote a biography of his life or an autobiography of his life. And, And we know so much about Jim Elliott, but what is often left out is there were four other guys that died with him on the same day, side by side with him. If I were to say Jim Elliott, a lot of people would know that name, but if I were to come back and say Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, Roger Udarian, most likely people would say, who? Who are they? I read an article this week that said, that, that literally said Jim Elliott and the four other missionaries. I tried to find these guys' names and I had to search to find their names. The whole point of this, y'all, is he did not go at it alone. He did not do it alone. You and I cannot do it alone. We won't do it alone, and we never were meant to do it alone. Just this one thing, live for the gospel and do it together. United in spirit, united in mind, united in faith. Christian maturity is exemplified and measured by how well we embody the gospel. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I thank you so much once again for your word. God, I thank you for Paul. I thank you for for the way that he's writing this while he's, he's possibly in chains, on house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, and he decides not to sulk, not to pout, but to write, to encourage this church, Lord, and we need the encouragement as well tonight. 
Lord, all of us in here have some area of our life that's got to be different. All of us in here have some area of our life where we need to repent. All of us in here, in some way or another, we've gotten maturity wrong. We've thought of maturity wrong. And God, the consequences of thinking of this wrongly really are fatal. And so, Father, I pray you'd correct any wrong thoughts in us tonight. God, you'd help us realize what needs to change. You'd help us realize that the purpose of tonight isn't to come and and sing songs and listen to a sermon and to leave unchanged, but it's life transformation because that's what the gospel is about. It's coming in and infiltrating and changing our lives. Father, I pray tonight that we would be honest with ourselves and that we would let you speak to us. Let's call this, Father, in your name. Amen. Yo, as we move into a time of response, I just want to encourage you to think to yourself, whatever that might be, maybe you, you need to look at me, maybe you need to bow your head, whatever it might be, but I want you to reflect on this. The first thing I'm going to ask you is this, how have you thought of maturity wrongly? Where have you gotten wrong? Has it been with knowledge? Has it been with proximity? Has it been with time? Has it been another way? But how have you gotten maturity wrongly? Maybe tonight you need, to, you need to pray and repent of pride in your life because of knowledge or pride in your life because you have the I've been in church for 12 years card. Pride in your life that comes from things that shouldn't bring that. Where do you need to repent tonight in regards to that? Second, I want to ask you once again, if Jesus were in your shoes in the exact same circumstances, how would he live differently than you are right now? That's what the gospel worthy is all about is I want to live and be and move and breathe like Jesus. What needs to change? Y'all, thirdly, I would ask you, are you trying to run this race alone? You know, maybe you say, I'm not really trying to, I just am. Y'all, we weren't meant to do this. I wanna ask you, will you buy into community here in Ruston? Will you buy into a community with a body of believers? If it's here, that's great. If it's another church, that's great. Wherever it's at, buy into a body of believers and run side by side, striving for the same thing. Don't do this alone. Don't try to do this alone because you can't. Maybe tonight you know there's sin in your life that you've been trying to defeat on your own. You can't. We need each other to run this race together. And last, I want to ask this. Maybe as I talk tonight, maybe the problem isn't that you've looked to knowledge or proximity or time in the church as a level of maturity. Maybe tonight you've based your salvation on one of those things. And I want to tell you tonight that knowledge does not make a believer. The, Fer- the Pharisees know more than you and I ever will about the Bible, and they weren't believers. The Bible says that Satan and the devil believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the grave. He believes that we are sinners, and yet he is not saved. Knowledge does not make you a follower of Jesus Christ. Being around here does not make you a follower of Christ. Going on the mission trips doesn't make you a follower of Christ. Time in the church, filling out a card when you're eight does not make you a follower of Christ. I'm gonna ask you, how are you living? What does your life look like? Have you been changed by the gospel? If not, I would ask you tonight to look at your heart. Maybe tonight you need to repent and surrender and give your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Whatever you do, whether standing, sitting, singing, being quiet, I want to ask you to respond tonight. I'll be in the back if you want to talk. Jacob will be in the back. My wife will be in the back. I just want to encourage you, don't leave tonight without wrestling with this message.